As I mentioned last week, we are beginning a new series entitled Disciple out of the book of 2 Timothy. And last week had the privilege of walking through the entire book with some main points along the way. And so this morning we're going to launch into that series. And as I start here, let me begin with an introduction. 463 years ago, on March 21st, 1556, a crowd of curious spectators packed University Church in Oxford, England. They were there to witness the recantation of one of the most well-known English reformers, a man named Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer was born on July 2nd, 1489, in the town of Aslockton, Nottinghamshire, England. His father died when he was young. His mother did her best to raise him on her own, and he later went to Jesus College in Cambridge. He studied the Bible extensively and became a professor at that college and later came to understand the Roman Catholic Church to be an heir, but he didn't break away from the church. When the plague struck Cambridge, and there was many plagues during that time frame, Cranmer and some of his students moved to Waltham Abbey, and there he met some of King Henry VIII's advisors. One of the main topics of discussion was about the king's desire to divorce his wife, Catherine. They asked Cranmer what he thought, and he replied that they should consult the universities for their opinion. The king was so pleased with his answer that Cranmer was asked then to be his chaplain, a position that he held until the end of his life. He later helped the king divorce his wife, Catherine, and then he validated his marriage to Anne Bolin, who was a Protestant, which allowed life to be easier for the reformers and their followers. A few years later, Cranmer was appointed Archbishop of Canterbury, which was the highest position in the Church of England. Cranmer was a humble, gentle man. He had learned to repay evil with good. He wasn't as firm as some of the other reformers of that day, but the Lord used him mightily to bring about much good in the country of England. He was instrumental in getting Tyndale's English translation placed in every church. And throughout these years of ministry, Cranmer began to change his view on two important doctrines of the Reformation the Lord's Supper, and the justification by faith through the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. Even though the king sided with the Roman Catholic Church, Cranmer was allowed then to still continue to minister. But then in 1553, Queen Mary was crowned queen in England, better known as Bloody Mary. Queen Mary condemned Cranmer for treason for his role in helping Jane Grey to the throne after King Edward died. Mary also hated Cranmer for his part he had taken in helping Henry divorce his, her mother, Catherine. He was arrested and taken to Tower Prison, along with Latimer and Ridley, of whom I've talked about before and I will talk about again. All three were pronounced as heretics and sentenced to death. At first, his resolve was strong. But after many months in prison, under the daily pressure from his captors and the imminent threat of being burned at the stake, this reformer's faith faltered. His enemies eventually coerced him to sign several documents renouncing his Protestant faith. In a moment of weakness, in order to prolong his life, Cranmer denied the truth he had defended throughout his ministry, the very principles upon which the Reformation itself was based. The flames seemed to be have snuffed out. The Roman Catholic Queen Mary viewed Cranmer's retractions as a mighty trophy in her violent campaign against the Protestant cause. But Cranmer's enemies wanted more than just a written recantation. They wanted him to declare it publicly. And so we come back to March 21st, 1556. Thomas Cranmer was taken from prison and brought to the university church. Dressed in tattered clothing, the weary, broken, and degraded reformer took his place at the pulpit. A script of his public recantation had already been approved, and his enemies sat expectantly in the audience, eager to hear his clear Denial of evangelical faith. But then something unexpected happened. In the middle of his speech, Thomas Kramer deviated from his script. To the shock and dismay of his enemies, he refused to recant of the true gospel. Instead, he bravely recanted of his earlier recantations. And finding the courage that he lacked over those previous months, the emboldened reformer rekindled the flame and announced to the crowd of shocked onlookers, quote, I come to the great thing that troubles my conscience more than any other thing that I've ever said or did in my life, 
and that is the setting abroad of writings contrary to the truth, which here now I renounce and refuse as things written with my hand, which were contrary to the truth, which I thought in my heart, being written for fear of death and to save my life. Grammer went on to say that if he should be burned at the stake, his right hand would be the first to be destroyed since it had signed those recantations. And then, just to make sure no one misunderstood him, Cranmer added this, and as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist with all of his false doctrine. Chaos ensued. Moments later, Cranmer was seized, marched outside, and burned at the stake. And true to his word, he thrust his right hand into the flames so that it would be destroyed first. And as flames encircled his body, Cranmer died with the words of Stephen on his lips. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, why do I share this story this morning as we begin our time in 2 Timothy? A couple reasons. First, I want to remind us for the next nine weeks of our church history. I'll be sharing different story of a Reformation hero each week as I introduce my sermon. I believe there's a lot we can learn and be reminded of from those that have gone before us, especially during the Reformation. Second, Thomas Cranmer is a picture, I believe, of a man that had the same makeup to that of Timothy. And why Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Paul is trying to fortify Timothy's, Timothy's faith to, to face the mounting persecution that is headed his way. Timothy faced pressure. He, he felt fear and anxiety over the future. And, and Paul wanted to draw his eyes back to the Lord and to the ministry he was called to. Someone mentioned to me, you, you notice this is one of Paul's pastoral epistles, meaning it's written to a pastor. But I believe it, it isn't just beneficial for the pastor. I believe that Timothy would have received this letter, a personal letter, and then promptly read it to the church to which he served, the Ephesian church. So that's what we're going to do. Many things in this letter apply to the pastors in our congregation. And as I said last week, you'll be served well to know what your expectations should be of your pastors, understanding their job description and how you can encourage them and how you can pray for them. And when I mean pastors, I don't just mean Ryan and I. In the scriptures, pastor is equivalent to bishop, to elder. We're all one. So when I say pastors, we have multiple pastors it's good to call Eric Peterson Pastor Eric. There is no division in Scripture. And it would do you well, church, to understand what the responsibility is for the pastor. And I believe this letter will help. But I believe also there's things along the way that you can apply to your life. And so I want to read the passage of this morning, and then I'm going to pray. So if you haven't turned already, turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy, starting at chapter 1. If you're using a Bible provided... In the seats, it's on page 935. If you're new to reading the Bible, we're glad you're here. We'd encourage you to have the Bible open in front of you. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you don't have a Bible open, you're going to get lost. And if you're new looking at it, the, the big numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verses. And so we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 this morning. So listen as I read. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us the spirit, not of fear, but of power 
and love and self-control. Father, we long to understand you better. We long to worship you through the preaching of your word. Open our eyes, unplug our ears, tenderize our heart, keep us alert and focused on you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you're a note-taking person, there's an outline that you should have received as you came in, and the, and the outline's real simple as we walk through. But first is the introduction here to the letter, verses one and two. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. The letter begins by identifying who the sender is, and the sender is Paul. His title, his authority to be able to write this letter, well, he's an apostle. And explains by whose authority? God's will. It wasn't James, it wasn't Peter or John who gave him this authority of apostleship, but it was God. And his life now was to serve God. And not, not simply life, but life which is now in Christ Jesus. And you may be here this morning and think that life is going all right. But if your life is not hidden in Christ, hidden behind Christ with Jesus in the forefront, then you don't know what real life is at all. And really, this sermon will, be not, will mean nothing to you at all, okay? And, and you need to know Jesus. And I don't say that sarcastically or snidely or mockingly. Believing the good news, believing the gospel changes you. And time again, I've had the privilege of sitting with folks in our church for membership interviews or just getting to know them. And, and one of the most enjoyable times with a church membership interview is hearing how someone came to know Jesus Christ. It's one of the main reasons we do a church membership interview. Who they were before God broke into their darkness and shone light and exposing their idols of worship. Right here, seated, is, is, is many individuals. Chris, who was raised a Catholic, not, not saved by works, but through Christ. And Ben, who was running towards hell until Christ stepped in to rescue him. And Joan, who lived in her own power and wisdom until God gave her faith to believe. Or Paul, who was raised in a pastor's home, but in an early age, God opened his eyes for him to see his sin and his separation from God. Or Eric, as a high schooler, who understood his sin was enough to condemn him to hell. Or Zach, who lived a sanitized life, but on the inside, he was spiritually dead. All these people, church members, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come the same way. All sinners needing new life. I was raised in a Christian home, and from the outside, my life was pretty clean. Friends, the truth was I was bound to my sin. I was a slave to sin as a nine-year-old. Slave to, to sinning in my heart, to my attitude, to my words. I thought I had life but my life wasn't in Christ. And to be honest with you, I was trapped and I didn't know it. And the world had a lock on my mind and my soul. There was no escape. I was trying to live life on my own, trying to be good, which is really not life at all. And my biggest enemy at that point was not out there. My biggest enemy was me. I knew all about God growing up in a Christian home, but I didn't know God. But then God came in. And I will say honestly, he came in without my permission. Because that's what he does when he saves you. And he changed my heart, taking my stony heart and giving me a heart of flesh. And who I once was, now gone. I remember hearing the gospel so many times. Finally, it's, it's sunk deep within my soul that Jesus Christ took my sin and died for me and rose again. And I finally had new life. And my old life, the old life of Jeff was gone. I was now in Jesus Christ. And I repented of my sins of living for myself and believed in Jesus Christ. And I was converted. I was made new. I was finally made alive. I never get tired of preaching the gospel. I love preaching the gospel. It never becomes exhausting. And we're all natural evangelists for the things that we love most. A church member asked Martin Luther one time, why do you preach the gospel to us each week? And Luther replied, because you forget it week after week. 
Friends, you have forgotten the gospel this week. And I'll keep preaching it every week. Let me pause. For all you teachers here at this church, no matter what class you teach, you need to preach the gospel every single week. It needs to be on your lips. You need it as much as your students need it. And when we love the gospel, when we love Jesus, we want to talk about him most. And this was the Apostle Paul. God gave him new life, and he could never get over it. And if you're here this morning and you have never turned from your sins, if you've never trusted in Christ, you need to talk with someone today. You need to talk to someone in your row. There are many friends here this morning who would love to talk to you about the gospel. I was saved on a Sunday over 33 years ago. I remember that Sunday. And after hearing the gospel so many times in my life, God pricked my heart and I couldn't escape it. I had to understand more and I couldn't let another day go by. And so I went home and asked my mom. I couldn't let another day escape me. I had to understand what Christ did for me. And friends, if this is you, don't let today end until you've talked with someone And I would love to talk with you. I know there's other pastors and elders and leaders that would love to walk with you so you would understand this gospel. So don't leave. Don't let today end until you understand what Christ has done for you. This is Paul. Paul loved it. So that's the sender. Who was he writing to? Verse two, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul Paul never had any physical children of his own as far as we understand, but Timothy was his spiritual child, his disciple. And if you read Acts 16, you see firsthand the recruitment of Timothy for the ministry that Paul was called to and that he was going to pass on. And, And Timothy accompanies Paul to Troas and Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And you learn a lot about someone when you travel and work with them. And this ministry brought about this father son relationship for Paul and Timothy. And the second half of the verse is Paul's trademark welcome in all of his letters, except he adds mercy here, which is vitally important for all who desire to serve as leaders in God's church. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The Father is the great eternal fountain of all these blessings, but the Son is a divinely appointed channel through whom they flow down to us. Grace to the undeserving, mercy to the helpless, peace to the restless. And how sweet it was and how how soothing this must have been to Timothy as he read this. Grace, mercy, and peace. And friends, how much we need this today. So that's the introduction here. Point two is him looking back, verses three through five. Paul looking back. He, He transitions now to look over his life. Look at verse three. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Remember, Paul, as I said last week, is locked away in a dungeon in Rome. He's, he's on death row. And what does he do here at the beginning of verse 3? He thanks God. He's doing what he's instructed the churches to do. In Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always in any circumstance for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do, even though you're locked in a prison and about to die, And word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There is always a good time to thank God. And Paul displays it for us. He's an example for us. Always be thankful. He serves God, just like his ancestors, he says, too. His parents who were Jewish. But maybe more applicable, though, is the forebears of the faith, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. And Paul here is following their lead. And he says he serves with a clear conscience. His, his conscience wasn't always clean, though, if you know anything about Paul. He was once a Pharisee who went around to murder Christians. Blood was on his conscience at one point. But since that day on the Damascus Road, when, when Jesus stepped in, he, he surveyed his life, and his conscience is now clear because of the blood of Jesus Christ applied to him. 
Another thing you, you notice here in this verse, Paul was someone who prayed. When Paul instructed the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing, he was only challenging them to do something that he was already doing. He was continually engaged in prayer. And he prayed so that many, I'm sure, has instructed Timothy in the first letter to instruct them on what he should do in prayer. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I don't know if you realize this, but Paul was probably praying for Nero. Let that sink in for a moment. Nero, the, the one in charge, you know, the man who had jailed Paul and it was pinning all of this turmoil now in Rome on him and who would eventually cut off his head. And Paul was praying for him, I'm sure. We don't get to choose which officials we pray for or what political views line up better with our conscience. We should pray for our leaders and Lord willing, we'll do that here every Sunday. But on top of that prayer list, though, for Paul was his son in the faith, Timothy. He never forgot to pray for Timothy. Night and day, it says. He was always in, in Paul's prayers. Paul was a man built on prayer. And our New Testament is full of prayers by, by Paul for people in churches. From Romans to Philemon, there are at least 39 prayers written for us in the New Testament. And as we observe Paul's ministry, we should notice above all else, he regularly prayed for others. And as we learn from him, our prayers will transform not just our prayers for ourselves, but the spiritual good of others as we're discipling other people. Our, our praying will be shaped by a profound desire to seek what is best for the people of God. And one book in particular that has been good for my spiritual growth is a book by D.A. Carson called Praying with Paul, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. And in that book, D.A. Carson just walks through all these prayers that Paul has in the New Testament. I encourage you to get a copy and, and may it encourage you in your prayers. But what an end here, an end of life for Paul. Thankful to God, a clear conscience, engaged in perpetual prayer. May we be like Paul in this way. So he looks back at his life, but not only his life, he, he looks back over Timothy, Timothy's life. Look at verse four. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Let's pause there. And we can read from that that Paul and Timothy experienced a rich friendship. People, not things, moved Paul's heart. And Timothy, his tears, I'm sure, were there when they were separated in ministry. In Acts 20, after Paul encourages Timothy and the Ephesian elders, Paul longs to see Timothy again, knowing that he doesn't have much time left. Everyone else has moved on in ministry or have abandoned Paul, but Timothy was sticking with him. And Paul wishes to see him again. They had a re relationship because of the gospel. Charles Spurgeon has said, Christianity does not make us unsociable. It gives us new ties of love. Have you found that to be true, Christian? How do you view the church? How do you view this meeting on Sunday mornings? Is it an event in your mind? Or is it a gathering of saints? We know that a church is not a building. A church is an assembly of people who are redeemed by God. Therefore, a church can't be a club. We're not Costco. Because a church is full of brothers and sisters. Becoming a Christian opens up an avenue for more relationships that weren't possible before. And, and Timothy grew up in that environment. He, he was raised in it. Look at verse 5. Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Now, Acts 16 it tells us that Timothy's his father was a Greek, most likely an unbeliever, and so he was raised in the Christian faith by his mother Eunice and grandmother Lois. And Paul knew these two ladies. 
he, he knew their sincere faith. Uh, better translated as unfeigned faith. Unfeigned is the negative form of a Greek word that, which was the word for hypocrisy. So they had an unhypocritical, I'm saying that wrong, but they had a, a real faith, an authentic faith. Meaning what, what James says for us, that you could see their faith in action. It was provable in their life. He's talking about his, his mom and his grandmother. It, it dwelt in them, meaning it found a place to live as one lives in a home. Faith found a home in their lives, and it was obvious to others. Their lives were a billboard for Timothy. He couldn't help but see it. Timothy saw their faith, and then he came to trust in Christ, and his life has demonstrated the same genuineness. Luke writes in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas enter Elystria, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. And then verse 2, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystria and Iconum. Well spoken of. He had proved himself. People were watching him, and they could see in the life of Timothy that he was different they showed faith, and they would speak highly of Timothy. So much so that when Paul comes into the city, he says, I have to have him. Which is huge, if you think of it. The most really important guy in the apostles going out to spread the gospel says, I want him, a young guy. And Paul believed God was going to use Timothy. He was, he was standing then in his corner. Timothy had a strong spiritual legacy with his mother Eunice and grandmother Lois. And mothers, I want to encourage you this morning. Even though the work of child rearing can seem mundane and thankless and even extremely unending, and exhausting. Moms, you're planting seeds in the hearts of your children that perhaps will grow your children to oak trees of stability and fortitude for the spread of the gospel. That boy that Eunice encouraged and that Lois prayed for had become the man to take the mantle of the ministry from the Apostle Paul. you see the power of a Christian mother and grandmother for their kids? And I know, moms, you're probably not getting a lot of thank yous from those kids. Stay the course. And ladies, if, even if you're here and you don't have any kids or grandkids, you have a lot right here. And speaking as a parent who grandparents are thousands of miles away, my kids need more grandmas to pass on faith. So you have no excuse. You can encourage them and adopt them. And moms, if you're here and you're just quick to think of all the ways that you failed your kids, your grandkids. Don't let failure have the last word. You need to run to the gospel this morning. Satan would want nothing more than for you to leave this place defeated and deflated and discouraged. But Christian, you are redeemed. You will never measure up on your own, but only through hiding in the good news of the cross. Your, your worth is not found in yourself. It's found in Jesus Christ. Don't be fooled into thinking that you can do it all. You can't. That's the point of the gospel. And because of the gospel, you can be forgiven for your past sins and find encouragement for the future. And moms, you need to wake up each day remembering the good news of the cross. 
and look for ways to encourage your kids or grandkids in the faith. You have a special role in their lives. Let's, let's not spend our days without discipling our kids in the faith. And if you feel weak, mom, that's okay. God uses the weak things of the world so that through them, his surpassing grace and glory and strength may be shown. God uses those who are willing to serve him. He uses those who are available. He uses the weak so that he will be glorified. He uses you moms, not because he needs you, but because he wants us to experience the glory of service and submission and spirit-infused living as you raise those kids. So don't walk away defeated. Walk away this morning remembering the good news. That God chose you and that he saved you and that he filled you with the Holy Spirit so they can use you for his glory in the life of your kids. And see, it's very deliberate here how Paul mentions Eunice and Lois because it would have given Timothy encouragement for the upcoming challenges that he would face. Paul is a good spiritual father. In these moments, Timothy's mind would have been thrusted backwards to the day when Paul and Silas came into town and learning of all the sufferings and trials that they endured for the sake of the gospel. And he remembered that Paul was no stranger to persecution. And he, he, he had dared danger and death. And he knew that he, he would do the same. Ever since Timothy knew Paul, that's what he knew would come for him. And so Paul is showing him his roots to fortify Timothy's faith to face the mounting persecutions that were coming. Suffering was coming for Timothy. Timothy would be afflicted for the gospel, and so he needed to be prepared. And so as he enters this book, he, he gives the introduction of why it's written and, and looking back, but then point three, he, he pushes him forward. Look at verses six and seven. For this reason, I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, of, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And Paul is writing to a pastor here. And friends, I realize that most of you seated here this morning aren't pastors. And most in the church of Ephesus weren't pastors either. But they, they, they would need to hear these words and be encouraged to pray for their pastors, to, to encourage those serving the church but if you are here and you're a pastor or if you're here and you desire to be a pastor someday, you need to listen. You need to really listen. You need to hear the words of Paul to Timothy because he's writing to you. It says in verse six, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Pastor, keep feeding the white hot flame the gift of God. The white hot flame, I, I added that. Actually, John Piper added it, and I think he's right. It's not in the text. I'm going to tell you why. Fire, real fire, is hot, right? When you say that you sunburn your arm and you say it's hot, but I can touch it and I'm not burned, it's not really hot. It's warm. But if you light a fire in your backyard and you feed those, that fire with more and more wood and those flames grow hotter and hotter, it's hot, and if you stick your hand in there, you will be burned. You will be hurt. There is hot, and then there's hot. Okay? And Paul warns him, he hot, white hot flame, not lukewarm, okay? You know what Jesus does or what he thinks of lukewarm, right? Read Revelation. He spits him out. He doesn't want lukewarm. No one likes lukewarm. So he's telling Timothy, be hot. Be hot, hot. Fan into white, hot flame. And is this a one-time deal? No. Fan into a white, hot flame. You have to keep feeding the white, hot flame or it will go out. A number of weeks ago, as we were gathered with the church for the, the church camping trip, we, we sat one, one morning because our campsite didn't have access to a campfire, so we went and stole some space from Curtis and Amanda Rice at their campsite. And in the morning, they had this fire 
a good time of fellowship. But Curtis couldn't sit there. You know why? Because they had to keep feeding the fire. Why? Come on, campers. Why? Because it'll go out. He would add more and more wood. He had to stoke the fire. It would go out. And this present tense here, this for the verb fan into flame is continuous. It's an ongoing action. You have to keep feeding the flame, brothers. Keep rekindling the flame. Spurgeon says, the gifts and graces of Christian men are like a coal fire that frequently requires stirring as well as feeding with fuel. The knife that is not used loses its edge and the man who does not work for God loses much of his ability to do so in the future. The flame will go out. The knife will become dull. Men, you have to flee, feed the flame. If you desire ever to, to serve the Lord as, as elders and pastors, you have to feed the white hot flame or you will burn out. As pastors, we cannot be lukewarm. Jesus will spit us out. You have to be the white hot flame. You see, Timothy was timid. He had a weak constitution. He had frequent ailments and a weak stomach. You read about it in 1 Timothy 5. He was timid by nature. He was naturally shy. He was an introvert. He naturally didn't step out in front. He would rather try to lead from behind. But serving as a pastor, as a shepherd, as an elder requires you step up and lead from the front. You have to stoke this to white hot flame, encouraging and praying and challenging. And pastors are exhorted, they're commanded to teach. And so Timothy had to set aside his timidity. He had to lead. He had to step out. He had to take risks. And men that are here this morning, elders and pastors, we have to be risk takers for the glory of God. There are plenty of men in this world who are passive. We cannot be passive. You have to step up. You have to lead. You have to fan the white hot flame. This is an endeavor. It's a huge endeavor that Paul is taking. The endeavor of the church beginning. And Timothy had to step up. Paul is writing from a cell. He's on death row. He is going to die. And was this movement of all the churches beginning, was that going to die with him? Or was Timothy going to step up? Timothy probably didn't like hearing this. He might have been flinching at this point in ministry because of what had happened to Paul. Thinking, if I step up and Paul's in prison about to die, what's going to happen to me? Paul says, you have to rekindle the flame. You have to stir it up. And what is he stirring up here? He says, the gift of God, which is in you through the laying hands. And what is the gift? Turn back just a few pages of your Bible. 1 Timothy 4, verses 11 through 15. Command and teach these things. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that they may see your progress. And then I read this last week in, in this book, 2 Timothy 4. Turn a couple pages over. I, I charge you, verse one, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. So what's the gift? What is he supposed to do? He's supposed to shepherd the flock that is among him. That's his gift. He was to teach others. He was to devote himself to prayer and exhortation and teaching and preaching. This was the gift of God for his life. And people would come along, as we read in 1 Timothy, and, and, and tell him he's too young to be a pastor. He, he's too inexperienced. He was despised by older people. They would have plenty of opportunities to quit. But Paul doesn't want him to quit. 
He wants him to put his big boy pants on and keep going. Fan the white hot flame of the gift of God by the preaching and teaching ministry. Don't neglect it. Don't let busyness and and the pressing needs of other people deter you from preaching and teaching the word. Don't let fear stop you from declaring the gospel. Every chance you get, stand and preach. Keep pressing into Jesus. Keep pressing into his word. And how did this gift get recognized with Timothy? Paul says it was identified through the laying on of his hands. When the elders, it, it talks about that laying on his hands earlier. Uh, and this man, they're, they're not magically investing him with power in that. Okay? There's nothing happening with, with the, the elders in the hand, okay? The power comes from God. They're just recognizing this. It's a public recognition of giftedness based upon what the Holy Spirit has already done in his life. It's a confirmation. It's a symbol of blessing. It's it's an ordination of sorts. And when Timothy wanted to quit or just mail it in, he could look back to those men surrounding him, laying their hands on him, sending him into ministry. And Timothy needed this encouragement. He needed to remember it and to review it. See, fear is real. Timothy was not a coward, though. Many people experience fear who are not cowards. A coward is one who lacks the courage to act against his fears in the face of opposition and danger. A coward is one who always wants to ride the fence and never steps on one side or the other. And Paul says to Timothy, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. God has not given his people a spirit who meets opposition and danger and then slinks away. I want to break that verse down, verse 7. First spirit. In your Bible, it's not capitalized, and I believe it should be. Gordon Fee is right in establishing that the spirit in verse 7 should have a capital S. In fact, it's referring to the Holy Spirit of God. I do not interpret this verse to talk about the human spirit or an attitude that God has given us, but I, I, I interpret it as the Holy Spirit. And why do I believe this? Because of the close tie between verse 6, the word gift, and then spirit in verse 7 is characteristic of Paul. The words of power and love in this verse are used especially for the work of the Holy Spirit in Paul's writings. And, and the last thing ties in well with what Paul already said in 1 Timothy 4, 14, where the gifting of Timothy is implicitly the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I believe verse 7 would be better read, for when God gave us his spirit, capital S, it was not timidity that we received, but power, love, and self-control. This to me makes the most sense. Secondly, though, what did he do? He didn't give us fear, but power. The spirit breathes power into the weak so that he will receive all the glory. Christian, we have the spirit indwelling inside of us, abiding in us, vitalizing our our whole nature. You won't see a guitar back here playing itself. You might see some special pianos that can do that. The guitar won't. The guitar needs power from someone else. It's the same for us, Christian. Power comes from God who lives inside of you. Third, he gives us love. Love is much more than a feeling because it's best seen in our action towards others. Serving others shows us that we love them. Jesus said, love your enemies, bless those that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus displayed for us perfectly what love is. He was faithful in his love for others and his example for us, friends. And the the Spirit has given us, Christians, opportunity to love others. And the last, he has given us self-control. If we're to overcome the temptation to fear, we must have power, love, and self-control that comes from the Holy Spirit. The mind of every Christian needs to be brought under the control of the Holy Spirit and under the authority of the Word of God. Timothy didn't need to muscle through. No, he needed to bring his worries to the cross where they would be crucified. He wasn't supposed to take them with him, but to crucify them. And we must be humble and wise enough to live a constant dependence upon Jesus Christ. So how do we apply this? 
Well, Christian, we all receive gifts. Every Christian has been gifted in some way. And then when we see, as I said, when we see the laying out of hands, it's not some magical incantation. It's just the public recognition of a man who's called to serve the church as a whole. But Christian, you, everyone, if you're a Christian, you've been gifted. And perhaps you don't know what your gifts are. Do you want to know what your gifts are? You have to start serving. That's the point of gifts. They aren't there for us. They're given to us so that we can serve others. We are gifted to give back. So if you're, if you're unsure what your gift is, you need to start serving. Serving in different areas. Try new ways to serve. Then, and this is where it gets sticky and where you might not want to obey what I say, but as you're serving, invite people into your life to observe you serving. Because sometimes we get into service and think that we can really do this when we really stink at it. And we need someone that cares for us and loves us, that walks with us to say, yes, I see gift in your life. This is what Paul heard from those that observed Timothy. As Timothy served, others walked with him and said, yep, this guy has it. You want this guy, Paul. And so if you're, if you're seriously wondering where your gifts are, you need to step up. You need to serve. And we're all gifted. If we don't exercise our gifts, they'll grow dull. Are we doing all we can for the church family? Are you doing all you can for your own family? I know that some of you are here and you're married to a spouse that rejects Christ. Are you doing? Are you laboring in prayer for your spouse to be saved? Do you share the gospel? How about the conversion of your neighbors? I have unsaved neighbors. Am I laboring to pray for them, to talk with them? Or am I so busy with all sorts of activities that I neglect to share the gospel with them? When was the last time you invited your unsaved neighbor over for coffee or for a meal? Well, this convicts me. Are we doing what we should? Are we fanning into a white hot flame our gifts that God has given us? What about prayer? Can we echo Paul's words about prayer here? Do we have habits of prayer, daily spending time with the Lord? If not, can I encourage you, friends, this week? If you're not sure what the prayer, or not sure how to start, just open up your calendar. I have a calendar on my phone. And, and, and pray through the day. Or if not, just list out the people that you think you're going to come in contact with that day and pray for them. Spend some time with the Lord praying for those people. And not only that, if you're a member of this church, if you've committed with us, you need to be praying for one another. We, we give you resources for this. There, there's even an app for your phone to pull up the membership directory. We have a printed out directory. You need to be praying for one another. We see this example by Paul. This should be what we're doing. We should be praying. We should be known as people who pray. And so let's begin this week. There's, there's so much more. There's even more. And, and I encourage you, if you're part of a care group and discuss it, I'm sure you're going to have a great discussion tonight. There's things even that maybe I didn't cover. I pray that you'll be fruitful in your discussion of this passage. But let me close things up here. As I began this morning, I talked about Thomas Cranmer. On March 21st, 1556, he died for his faith. He was timid. And he had been so afraid to suffer. And he didn't always stand up for the truth. He had sins and he had faults like any other man. But God used him to extend the truths of the Reformation in England and enabled him to die a heroic martyr for the faith. Perhaps you don't know this, but in AD 97, an 80-year-old pastor... Timothy tried to halt a procession in the honor of the goddess Diana. Timothy, that Paul is writing to, stood out and preached the gospel, an 80-year-old man. And the angry 
crowd beat him, dragged him through the streets, and stoned him to death. Timothy would die for his faith. Timothy preached the gospel for over 30 years after this letter was written. Paul's desire for Timothy to be fortified in the faith was seen with an 80-year-old man keeping the faith, willing to stand and preach the gospel to a rowdy crowd. Friends, may we don't May we not forget the good news of the cross. May you spend your week reminding one another. We're going to end our time this morning worshiping together, remembering the gospel. If we were left to ourselves, we would march right into hell and we wouldn't look back. But he loved us first and he wakened our our souls and breathed life into our bodies and salvation is all of God. And we can sing that this morning, Christian, that all we have is Christ. All we have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is our life. Let's pray. Father, we are astounded by you. That you would dare save someone so wretched as us. You are worthy of our worship. May we declare it with our words and with our lives. Help us, Father, not to leave this place and forget you. Help us to fan into white hot flames the gift of God in us through the Holy Spirit. And perhaps there are pastors and elders here who have allowed their flames to burn out. May you reignite them for your glory today. And perhaps, Father, you're preparing more men in our midst to step up and take the mantle of serving this church family as elders and pastors. We beg you that more men would be gifted to this church. May this book be an encouragement to that end. May we all be found faithful when we stand before you that day. We love you, Jesus. Amen.